passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. So, as I mentioned earlier, it's a great privilege to get to celebrate the resurrection this morning um, with you all. And um, what makes that so amazing and so beautiful is it's not just Christ's resurrection that we're celebrating. Um, That's certainly our focus. But because of Christ's resurrection, we have a guarantee of our own um, future resurrection if we've placed our faith in Jesus, and uh, that's, that's certainly worth celebrating. Over the last few weeks as I've been preparing for um, this morning and, and just praying, what exactly, God, would you have us focus on this morning? I've, I've been in awe. Um, this is going to sound bad. Um, I've been in awe not so much of the resurrection, even though that's, that's certainly true. Uh, I've I've spent most of my time, however, being in awe of the heart posture of God that leads us to this moment, that leads us to Easter. And so here's a, here's a question that might get at the heart of, of what I mean when I say that is, what is God's underlying motivation for what leads to the cross and the empty tomb? What is the underlying motivation of God that leads him to intervene into human history in order to make a way for people who are far from him to be brought near forever into his presence? What is God's heart posture toward you in the story of the resurrection? And that's what I want us to consider this morning. I just want to take a a moment to to look at, at one verse in Paul's letter to the church in Rome where we see God's heart posture revealed. And this one verse is is Paul is nearing the end of his letter to the Romans. He he writes these powerful, crucial words. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And that's the lens through which we should look at and consider Easter, God's heart posture, his motivation for the Easter story. If there's just one truth that I hope sinks deeply into our hearts this morning, every fiber of our being, I hope it's this. Easter doesn't declare that Jesus tolerates you. It declares that he welcomes you. Easter is, is not saying, you know what, God is, is tolerating you, he's, he's okay with you, but he wants to keep you at a distance. It's Jesus welcomes you. God doesn't thumb up his nose at you. He doesn't just extend grace to you because he's contractually obligated to do so. He doesn't give you new life in spite of wishing that he could do otherwise at Easter, the resurrection, the empty tomb. God delights to welcome you. And as we'll soon see, that welcome is into his family. And that's what makes the good news of Easter so amazing. It's what makes it truly good news. It's not just that God saves, but that God saves to the uttermost because it's his delight. Easter declares that Jesus doesn't just tolerate you. He welcomes you into his family. 
What exactly does that mean? That's what we're going to unpack this morning from this one verse. There's three parts, three phrases in Romans chapter 15, verse 7. And we're going to look at each in turn in light of this incredible story of Easter. Let's, uh, let's pray as we jump into God's word. Lord, we thank you for the wonderful news of Easter. We marvel in your victory. Not just because of how it displays your power, but because it shows your heart. Who are we that you are mindful of us? That you have not only made a way for us to dwell forever with you, but that you set your heart on your people for our good. Thank you, God. We ask now that you would turn our hearts and minds toward this incredible wonder that you would help us, enable us to see you in all your glory and in all your beauty. Bless this time in your word for your glory and for our good. It's in Jesus' wonderful and triumphant name we pray. Amen. Well, the text opens with a command that really just places our verse in context. It says this at the very beginning of verse 7, Therefore, welcome one another. That sets the the context here. Paul is writing to this church that's tempted toward division. The Roman church, just for a little bit of of context, was was established shortly after the resurrection of Jesus around the year 30 AD. uh, Jewish residents of Rome traveled to Jerusalem for a pilgrimage. They they heard the gospel there in Jerusalem. They became Christians. We see that in Acts chapter 2. And then they returned home. And they brought the gospel with them, and this small but vibrant church started in the very heart of the Roman Empire. And for the next 15 years or so, the church steadily grows. It grows among Jews, and it grows among Gentiles as well. And yet, after about 15 years, around the year 45, the emperor, Claudius, banishes all the Jews out of Rome. He kicks them out of his capital city. But that wasn't the end of the church in Rome. The Roman church endured. Gentile Christians continued to gather to celebrate the risen Jesus, to worship together. And not only did the church endure, but the church actually continued to grow. And eight years later, eight years after the Jews were kicked out of Jerusalem or out of Rome, they were actually allowed to return back to Rome. And many of them came back to their homes that they had had to leave eight years earlier, and yet they found a church that was drastically different than what they had left and what they had remembered. I want you to just take a moment and and try to imagine how hard that would be, not just for the Jews who had to leave and then could come back, but also for the Gentiles as well. These Jewish Christians had been kicked out of their home. They'd founded this church, and now they found themselves as they came back on the fringe of the church because they'd been gone for nearly a decade. And they they surely rejoiced that the gospel had continued to spread in Rome, and yet it was undoubtedly a tough pill to swallow to see that their church now looks so different than the one that they had remembered. Of course, this was also hard for the Gentiles as well. These Gentile Christians would have been excited to welcome their Jewish brothers and sisters back into the church. They were thankful for the legacy of faithfulness that had established this church through those paragons of the faith. This flourishing of the church in Rome had its roots in these Jewish brothers and sisters who had brought the gospel back to Rome. And yet at the same time, 
When they had been kicked out of Rome, who was left with all of the, the responsibility in the church? It was the Gentile Christians who had been thrust into leadership. It was the Gentile Christians who had to learn through trial and error and experience the growing pains of a church continuing to minister in this hostile city. These Gentile Christians had to earn their stripes, so to speak. And so to revert back to the way things used to be would have been a challenge, to put it mildly. And it's in that tension that the Apostle Paul is writing to, these ch to this church, to these Christians, these Christians who have two contrasting visions for what the church should look like, for this lack of clarity on the future direction of the church, to radically different groups of believers. What does Paul say when he's writing to them? He says that the key isn't just bearing with one another. The key isn't just to put up with one another even though we don't necessarily see eye to eye. The key is to welcome one another following the example of Christ Jesus. The key to a faithful Christian life in the church is not to just tolerate people who are different than you, but to follow Jesus and welcoming people and to do so sacrificially. That's the heart of that first phrase. It's this call to follow Jesus in our relationships with other people. That's the heart posture of God, and that's the heart posture God desires for his people to show toward one another, even when we have little in common, even when the world says that we should be enemies. It's to look at the example of Christ and not just tolerate one another, but to welcome one another. But we might say, what exactly does that mean? What does that look like? That's what I want us to consider the bulk of our time this morning, to look at the good news of the resurrection through the lens of the welcome of Jesus for all people who are far off. Consider again that second phrase in Romans chapter 15, verse 7, as Christ has welcomed you. The notion here of a welcome is not just being friendly, but keeping people at a distance. This word welcome is, is not so much being friendly with one another. It's more literally just about receiving a person into your inner circle. And this is true no matter a person's faults, no matter a person's failures, no matter a person's past. It's to say to a person, come as you are and you will be loved and welcomed in this family. That's what makes the heart posture of Jesus at Easter so astonishing in a very real way. Easter is the working out of Jesus' heart on display when he said to his disciples, come to me, all who are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This welcome of Jesus is, is not conditional, it's open to all. It doesn't matter if you are weary, it doesn't matter if you are heavy laden from all your attempts to live the good life, to make life good enough to earn God's graces. Jesus welcomes everyone in his victory over sin and death, and it's a victory that gives you rest. Because Jesus isn't just surface level friendly, but he will welcome you into his circle. And I confess, as I, I think of this word welcome, a lot of times my heart actually substitutes that word welcome with a different word or a different idea at mine. And it's, it's the opposite of what God really means when he talks about welcoming people in the gospel. My heart is insecure 
My heart has been hurt too many times. There's this shame over the things that I have done. And I find grace too good to be true many times. And that idea of a welcome from the Lord Jesus is just utterly foreign. A lot of times when we hear this word welcome, we actually hear the word tolerate. That Jesus tolerates us. This welcome of Jesus is not a full reception into his circle or into his family, but more of Jesus is just there. He's grinning and bearing with us. He's going to deal with us. When we're honest with ourselves, we come face to face with our own faults, our own failures, our own shortcomings. We can't imagine that Jesus would want anything to do with someone like me in his family. And so we hear welcome. But we think, yeah, Jesus welcomes me, but he keeps me at a distance. He tolerates me. And I want you to, have you ever been invited to someone's house and, and you can just tell as you're in their house that they're, they're keeping track of every single thing that you do? They, they're, they're, they're keeping score of your every move. Like there's this set of unwritten rules when you walk into their house and you're expected to know, you're expected to follow all of those rules and if you don't follow them, well then you're met with this stern disapproval from this person who's keeping track of every single bite of food you eat, what chair you sit in, what you are doing, how clean you are, how careful you are being, where you sit, on on and on and on. And that's what many of us think of, of when we think of the welcome of Jesus. It's like, sure, you can come on over, but you better be on your best behavior. That Jesus is following us around, uh, and he's got this unwritten list of rules of what you should do, what you shouldn't do. You can have food, but you better not eat too much. You can have a seat, but don't you dare sit in that chair. And if you brought your kids over, well, you're just straight out of luck. Because they're going to make a mess of the entire place. They don't care about any of those rules. And we think, you know, Jesus may welcome me, but he's not actually going to enjoy having me around. He's just going to tolerate me. Because that's what he has to do. Because he's Jesus. Others of us, when we hear the word welcome, we, we think, you know what, there's, that actually means this, this welcome, but, but it's, it's tinged with regret. It's like Jesus didn't read the fine print. And he's like, oh my goodness, what have I been saddled with here? Jesus didn't realize how messy our lives were, how much of a work in progress I was. Jesus didn't grasp how how much I was going to screw up, how prone I was to wander, how deep the idolatry is in my heart, how deep that selfishness is, just the utter disregard for the things of God and how, how deep it is in me. Like Jesus clearly didn't know what he was getting into when he welcomed me into his family. Our hearts say, you know what, sure, Jesus might have welcomed me into his family. He may have received me into his circle, but I bet a day doesn't go by when he at least experiences a little bit of regret. That Jesus is saddled with the worst case of buyer's remorse of all time because of what I am like. We think grace is too good to be true. On the opposite end of the spectrum, there's those of us who hear this word welcome and our hearts just hear the word friendly, surface level friendly. And and it's not just that that that's what we think, that's what we're counting on. That's what we, we desperately want from Jesus because we just want to be friendly acquaintances. We don't really want to be brought into his inner circle. The thought of Jesus welcoming us into his inner circle, it terrifies 
us because we'd rather keep him at arm's length. We're fine with this idea of being a part of the family of Jesus as long as that means distant cousin that we see once or twice a year and not expected to actually invest time and energy into a relationship with. And in all of these misunderstandings of the word welcome, we miss the true heart of God at Easter. He doesn't just tolerate you. He doesn't regret extending a welcome to you. He doesn't want to just be surface-level friends. The book of Romans actually gives us a picture of the heart of God in the resurrection, giving us an understanding of what this word welcome really means. Earlier in Romans, we see in Romans chapter 5 that Christ welcomes us at our worst. And because Christ has welcomed us at our worst, it is a guarantee of a forever welcome. Romans chapter 5, verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. I confess Paul's wording here, his language is a bit odd for us, but it's a relatively straightforward argument when, it, when you, you know, spend some time with it. If you were to ask someone what is the greatest act of, of sacrificial love that you could muster, it would probably be this idea of laying down your life for another person. And, and we were, if we were to take an inventory of our own lives and say, all right, what is the, give me a list of those that you are willing to lay down your life for, it's probably a pretty short list. For many, it would be limited to family, maybe a few other people, and we laud the heroism of other people who lay down their lives for complete strangers. But in those moments, that's the exception rather than the rule. And in those moments, when heroes lay down their lives for complete strangers, it's usually for the innocent. So the greatest love, this is Paul's argument, for the, the greatest love that, that the human mind can think of is for a person to lay down their life for a good person. That's Paul's argument here. In verse 6. But that's not what God does. When we look at what Romans 5 tells us, the highest form that a, of love that a human mind can, can fathom is to lay down your life to spare a good person. What does that say about God's love? He did not lay his life down for good people, for innocent people. It was for the weak, verse 6. It was for the ungodly, verse 6. It was for sinners, verse 8. It was for his very enemies, in verse 10. Romans 5 tells us that God's love is absolutely off the charts. Even the greatest example of human love pales in comparison to the love of God when we see him reconciling those who are his enemies and bringing them into his family through the death of his son. That is the love of God, that God didn't wait for you to start getting your act together before he began his rescue plan. That God didn't wait for you to prove 
that you were serious about your faith before he decided to send his son to die in your place. That God didn't wait until you were open to the idea of a God who ruled over the entire cosmos, who was in charge before he decided to step in to human history. He didn't wait until you were strong, that you were showing potential and promise. Romans 5 tells us that while we were still weak, Christ died at the right time to rescue us. That's what I mean when I say Romans declares that that Christ welcomes us at our worst. That's the heart of verse 10. I want to read verse 10 again. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Do you catch the guarantee of that verse? It's an if-then statement. Paul is saying, if God did the hard thing, then of course he's going to do the easy thing. If God has already done the hard thing, if he's, he's welcomed the weak, he's, he's welcomed sinners, he's welcomed his enemies, then there's no doubt that he's going to do the easy thing. He's never going to give up on his people. Do you doubt the love of God for someone like you? Then verse 10 is for you. In the margins of my Bible, I have written next to verse 10, this reminder, if God loved me, at my worst, he won't stop loving me now. If God saved me when I was his enemy, how much more now that I am his family? Jesus welcomes people, and it's not a welcome that's, that's filled with regret. He, he knew full well what he was getting into when he came to you and to me. He saw you at your weakest. He saw you when you were trapped in the depths of your sin. He saw you when you were his enemy. And he loved you and welcomed you anyway. Jesus' welcome for his people is not just this form of tolerance. He's not following you around with a scorecard, scribbling down every fault and failure so that one day he can hold it against you. There will never be a day when the bill comes due because it's been paid in full by his son. Jesus welcomed you when you were at your worst, and his welcome will remain forever. The welcome of God in light of Romans 5 silences the lie, the lies of the devil, that God's love for you will only go so far. It will never stop. If he loved you at your worst, he will never stop loving you. Jesus' welcome is forever. And it's for people like you and me. Look at another chapter in in Romans, and we see another example of this heart posture of God in the events of Easter. I love Romans 8, one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. One of the reasons why is because it gives us a, a glimpse of God's heart for people like us. It's it's worth there's so much worth mentioning in this chapter. I just want to highlight a few. First, verse one. Notice the assurance that we will never outwear the welcome of Jesus. Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We saw that earlier in Romans chapter 5. It's made explicit here. Those who have been welcomed by Christ Jesus, those who are found in Christ Jesus, those who Christ Jesus has received into his inner circle will never be cast out. He will never kick them out of his family. Paul writes this 
significantly just a few verses after in Romans chapter 7, talking about his ongoing struggle with sin. He's saying, there's this war within me, and I don't do the things that I should, the things I want to, and instead I do the things that I don't want to do. Just a few verses earlier, he says this, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And the next verse is, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Even when you fall, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because he has welcomed you. A few months ago, I heard a a song that I absolutely love that gets at the heart of this. It's called Love Still Bids You Welcome. It says this, O God of grace, how often have I grieved thee? How seldom have I sung thy praise? And little do I know how much I need thee. And time again I turn away. For how my heart is hard and unbelieving for all I've done and left undone. Your love is not reluctant to receive me. My soul draws back, but love says come. He will not cast you out. He will not cast you out. Whoever enters in forever will dwell with him. Draw near, faint heart, draw near. Love still bids you welcome here. There is no condemnation And Christ's love for you, his welcome for you is eternal, unwavering, unchanging, no matter what you have done. Love still bids you welcome. Romans 8 gives us another picture of this welcome. Throughout our time together this morning, I've mentioned that this welcome is into Jesus' inner circle. It's into his family. That's made explicit here in Romans chapter 8 where Paul writes this, "For, For you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Here, I I think we see the, the stunning reality of what it means to be welcomed into the family of God. There's no second class citizen when it comes to the family of God. Jesus welcomes people into his family, and he welcomes them Not just as brothers and sisters, but that would be amazing enough. He welcomes us as his co-heirs, as as the recipients of the full inheritance that Jesus has won through his faithfulness, his obedience, through his sinless life. Everything that Jesus has won, he shares it gladly with you. You are not left with crumbs. You are given the prize of the victorious son forever. You are a full son or daughter of the king of the cosmos because the victory of your adoptive older brother Jesus is now all yours. What a welcome. What a welcome Jesus extends to us. Finally, Romans 8 also reminds us that in his welcome, Jesus declares the eternal love of God the Father for you. There is no division between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in their affection for you. God the Father does not need any convincing from the Son to love you. That's the assurance that Romans 8 actually ends with. In the resurrection, God unequivocally declares that he is for us. 
Take a look at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? In the context of Romans 8, Paul has just gotten done speaking at length about the incredible glory that has assured the people of God in the future. And, and now he, he pauses, and, and I love this phrase, what shall we say to these things? Because it's almost like Paul, just like, he, he can't continue. And, and he, he takes a moment to collect his breath. What shall we say to these things? This amazing glory that awaits the people of God. How can I possibly find the appropriate words to describe what God has done for us? And then from there, he describes what he means by these things. That's the last part of this verse. If God is for us, who can be against us? What incredible words. Amazing words, beautiful words that God is for us. God is for his children. What an incredible welcome. No wonder Paul is left speechless as he's considering this subject, that the God of the universe, the creator of distant galaxies, the Lord of every atom and subatomic particle of creation is for us, is for you, in spite of all our rebellion against God. He has freely chosen to make us, not as slaves, but to make us his sons and daughters at the cost of his son. Now, this promise does not mean that God is going to prevent any bad thing from happening to us. It does not mean that whatever we want, God is going to give it to us. It does not mean that God protects his children from suffering and pain like a helicopter parent today. God allows his children to experience hardship, to face suffering, as Paul knows full well. He discusses that at length here in Romans chapter 8. But to declare that God is for us is to know that nothing can ever effectively stand against us. That's what Paul means in the latter half of verse 31. Who can be against us? When you're welcomed by Christ, you have nothing to fear. Life teaches us that many people are against us. We are strangers and aliens in this world. We follow our master's footsteps, and that means that we are often despised, often rejected in this world. The devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. We suffer loss in this world, no matter the source. We get sick. We lose friends. Trust is broken. Dreams are dashed. Many are against us, intend us harm. And yet Paul tells us in verse 28 what the outcome, the result of all these things is. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Many are against us, but those who, are, who love God and are called according to his purpose, then all things, all things that stand against us will be ineffective. God will take those losses. God will take those hurts. God will take that shame and he will work together this incredible masterpiece of glory in your life. The aims of the enemy will be thwarted. The pain of lost friends and family will produce glory. 
the sicknesses of life. They stitch together this tapestry that makes us even more like Jesus. If God is for you, he will not spare you those things, but you can be confident that he will work them out in your life to produce in you an unimaginable masterpiece of glory. Christ's welcome assures you of the Father's unending love for you. You see, Easter declares that Jesus doesn't just tolerate us. He welcomes us. Welcomes us into his family. The final verse of, uh, final, final phrase of, of verse seven gets at the, the result, the heart of this incredible welcome. It says this, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Jesus has welcomed you into his family. He has received you gladfully. He, he's received you joyfully. His father's extravagant love for you, his, his, the spirit's work in dwelling you to bring you into the family of God. All those things are ultimately for the glory of God. Have you ever considered that your status as a daughter or a son of God is an eternal declaration of God's unending goodness, his unending glory, that you've been welcomed into the family of God, and that truth for all eternity will declare to all creation how glorious this God is. God's glory is on full display when the weak are welcomed into the people of God by Jesus' death and resurrection. God's glory is on full display when sinners are made holy. God's glory is on full display when enemies are not just brought into this uneasy truth with, truce with God, but they're actually made a part of his family. God's glory is on full display when we are assured that we will never outwear our welcome with this God. God's glory is on full display in the assurance of God's love for us now and forevermore. And lest we forget the first part of this verse, God's glory is on full display to a watching world when we show that same radical love to one another, even when we are different from one another. Easter reminds us that Jesus doesn't just tolerate us. He welcomes us into his family for the eternal glory of God. What if we let that one word, welcome, forever transform the way that we think of God's heart for us? What if we let that truth sink deep inside our hearts? At Easter, we see the extravagant welcome of God to a lost and rebellious people. That's the heart of God for you. No matter your past, no matter what you've done, he welcomes you if you would turn to him in repentance and faith and you would be a part of his family forever. He says to us, welcome. Welcome into my family for my father's glory. Let's pray.
Jesus, what a welcome. How good you are. That you have taken those who are far off and you have brought them near. Thank you. Help us to never lose sight of that truth. That you are for us. That you will not condemn us. And that you welcome us into your family forever. It's in Jesus' name we pray. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.